This is an unholy emergency episode. Israel at war, living a nightmare scenario after a shock attack from Hamas. I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Jerusalem. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian, usually in London. It's unholy, two Jews on the news. Um, I'm traveling on the road. Yonit is back in Israel. A day of infamy, some commentators already saying, a day of tragedy and horror. Is it 9-11? Is it Israel's Pearl Harbor? Is it the Yom Kippur War all over again, 50 years and one day after a surprise attack? Deadly scenes and carnage across Israel. Um, so you'll need people will obviously be following the reports hour by hour, but you're living it. Just, I mean, describe to us what you're seeing and what's happening. I have a hard time explaining this, uh, explaining what it feels like, because never in living memory, in the living memory of our generation, my generation, uh, have we encountered anything like this. Um, the last episode you and I recorded dropped on Friday. It was exactly 50 years to the day of the opening of the Yom Kippur War. Little did we know, little did tragically the IDF Defense Forces of Israel know that what we will see a day after will be a shock attack by Hamas uh, against Israel. So while uh, terrorists managed to breach the border and enter into Israel, they also encountered, this is sadly their good luck and Israel's bad luck, but at the time there was a sort of rave party, a nature party going on on the border next to a place called Re'im. Hundreds, if not thousands, of young Israelis partying the very early hours of Saturday morning. And so the terrorists kind of managed to... Uh, Essentially, this was this was a massacre. They shot at so many of those uh, young partygoers and also managed to abduct uh, some of them. That is really one of the more terrible stories, probably the most terrible story in this whole this whole past day and a half. All of the and we will talk about this really all of the defense that should have been in place for and to protect the citizens of Israel uh, basically collapsed. This is a colossal failure in so many on so many levels. But I think first and foremost, we should update what we know now. And we are sitting here on uh, Sunday. It's three o'clock uh, local time in Israel, three o'clock in the afternoon. We know that there are 600 Israelis dead. This is beyond anything Israel knows. Uh, there's civilians, families, children, women. Soldiers, we don't know, and, and should we, we should say, this is not the final number. This is not the final number because there's still some areas of fighting and not into every place that there has been fighting did the uh, IDF for, forces enter. So we don't know the full number, but there are 600 dead at this point, uh, more than 1,800 injured, and crucially, Dozens of Israelis, another number that we don't know clearly at this point, that have been abducted, forcibly held by Hamas, taken from Israel's uh, sovereign territory into uh, the Gaza border. It was those um, images that particularly, I think, terrified people watching on a, from afar, people with, I mean, it was one of those days where the Jewish world was sort of united. It was, you know, people calling relatives friends, cousins, family. Uh, and that's partly because the fear that those images struck of, particularly the notion of Hamas operatives crossing a border and grabbing 
Israeli civilians on off the streets. I mean, just grabbing people and then in some ways it's imagined to be a fate worse than death to grab them and take them back across the border where they will be held hostage in Gaza. And the notion that, you know, that as it stands, one of the singular images of a, an elderly woman on a golf cart being uh, led by Hamas into Gaza, the fear that that strikes into the heart, as I say, not just of Israelis, people who care about Israel, Jews, etc., around the world, um, at the vulnerability that will entail. So, I mean, the dictionary definition of a terror attack, this has struck terror into everybody who is living through it and witnessing it, um, and as I say, radiating around the Jewish world, and this strangeness of it being a surprise attack yet again on a holy day. Yom Kippur War was on a Saturday. This was a Shabbat, a Saturday again. The closing hours of the Sukkot holiday, people's minds were elsewhere. And once again, Israel caught vulnerable. But this time, in a way, I would say the vulnerability is even more intense because it's where people live. It's in their civilian homes. It's in Sterot. It's in Kibbutz Be'er. It's in Nachal Oz or Ofakim. These are places where people just live their ordinary lives. Whereas the, you know, sense we now have of the Yom Kippur War, it was, you know, the first wave was felt at military posts and installations, mm -hmm. particularly in the north and so on. So this feels like it's really struck, um, the, the heart of the country and the death toll. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's already more when you say 600. And as you said, the number's going to rise. That number is already greater than the number of Israeli, certainly civilians killed in some of the previous big storied yes, conflicts, definitely, um, definitely, including, yeah. I think, the Yom Kippur War. Definitely more. And you mentioned the Yom Kippur War. It is the same in it, when it comes to the colossal failure of intelligence, right? Because obviously, if Hamas managed to do this, there were hundreds of people on this uh, mission planning for it and practicing uh, it for months. But it is different from the Yom Kippur War and the fact that that was... Uh, those were soldiers fighting against soldiers of another country attacking Israel. Here, this is a terror terrorist group who, unfortunately, has been terribly successful in targeting civilians. And again, this is a colossal failure of, of intelligence. And then on the oper it's an operational failure because once they did manage to breach the border that Israel thought was, you know, would protect its citizens, once they managed it and they managed to get to these towns and villages on the Gazan border and stay there for hours. And you got calls, Jonathan, on air from families who were in their safe rooms in the houses. And of course, many people on the border do have safe houses because they're uh, frequently attacked by rockets uh, from uh, Hamas sent from Gaza, launched from Gaza. So you had people locked in their safe room calling the media, whispering, we have terrorists in our house. We have terrorists surrounding ours. Please come and save us. And it took the military a long time, tragically long time to arrive there. One of the reasons is that they, that they actually attacked the military bases as well. So the military was occupied, sadly occupied elsewhere. And then 
over the course of a couple of hours, you had these, these, you know, scenes of abduction of people forcibly being uh, taken into Gaza. And you ask yourself, how is this possible in sovereign Israel that you have a terrorist group? By the way, not even the most formidable foe Israel is standing against, right? For hours, managing to essentially conquer towns on the border and to take uh, citizens away. By the way, Hamas... Uh, will release today the, the number that they say that they have abducted. Uh, we don't know yet uh, how many people that is and if they will give the accurate number. But you saw these scenes of families being taken away, of children being taken away, of, of elderly uh, people, as you mentioned. I mean, this is something in, in the, I think, the sentiment of feeling like you don't have a country that's protecting you. Where is the military? Where are the police? Where, where's the government? Who is protecting these, these people? I think it's even worse in that regard uh, than the Yom Kippur War. Israel is not under existential threat. We should say this. It's horrendous and it's, it's, it's a tragedy. It's a calamity and a disaster, but Israel is not under existential threat. But we, this is far from over. It looks like rather yeah. like this is a beginning of, of something. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that points have an important difference. On our previous podcast, we did talk about how Yom Kippur 1973 felt as if the existence of the state was on the line, that the country could be entirely overrun and extinguished. And that was that anxiety. This case, not that, as you've explained, but the civilian death toll higher for the reasons we've been saying. And I think this notion of going to the, your, the sort of underbelly, the vulnerable, point of a country, which is its civilians, its children, its elderly, not even feeling able uh, to, to protect themselves. And if we remind ourselves of what the whole point of a Jewish state was, if we go back to the very founding ideas of the country, it was that at last Jews would be able to defend themselves and not be vulnerable yes. to attacks where people, the the women, the children were vulnerable. It's a deep, deep thing uh, in uh, in the psyche. And I think that image of the bulldozer tearing down the fence and then just going across, the notion that it was only a mere fence that stood mm. between safety and death I think we'll, uh, again, add to that sense of, of vulnerability. What? I thought Israel was meant to be the regional superpower. We thought Israel always talks about how, you know, other countries talk about it as a hugely mighty colossus. And yet I look here and see that the uh, military deaths in the first Lebanon war, for example, which we know was a huge episode, um, 657, this number among civilians will exceed that. And that was yet a huge episode in the country's uh, history. Uh, so this, all of this is going very deep, will go very deep. I don't know, you'll have to tell me, Yoni, whether people are already where you are beginning to point fingers and say, how, who left us this vulnerable? Who is to blame for this? You know, in our conversation on Friday, we know that was huge around Golda Meir and the army and in commissions of inquiry. It went very, I don't know if that process has started, but I can tell you that outside where people are not feeling it as viscerally as obviously you and my own friends and family are, um, those are the questions that are obviously suggesting themselves. How on earth could a country as, as it were, superficially mighty as this see itself overrun, as it were, so easily? Um, where were the soldiers? You know, I've been having text messages, people pointing out where else soldiers were that day, including, mm -hmm. uh, well, I might come on to that later about that because it's a kind of loaded example. Those sorts of questions. Are you hearing that or are people just dealing with the immediate trauma? I mean, look, this is a nation uh, traumatized. 
uh, traumatized yet again. Uh, and more than anything, it, it reminds me of, of New York after 9-11. I was there. That feeling of civilians being targeted by a terror organization that, again, wasn't even the biggest enemy the United States uh, stood against. It wasn't Japan in World War II. It wasn't North Korea. It wasn't, you know, Iran. It was bin Laden. And you remember that feeling of being um, just utterly surprised and shocked by the lack of intelligence and by the aftermath. Remember, there were people, you know, walking around in Manhattan with those endless pictures of the of, of, um, of missing people. And you have the same here because no one really knows, again, since uh, this isn't over yet, there's still pockets of fighting. You don't yet know if the people who are missing are dead. Have they been abducted into Gaza? What happened to them? And you have people, I mean, Jonathan, every journalist in this country, actually every Israeli probably, has, has had his phone, you know, I've received tens and hundreds of messages of people saying, I'm looking, I'm, I'm desperately seeking my cousin, my sister, my mother. I don't know where they are. It's a situation. Again, this is a nation in trauma and shock, um, obviously deeply subdued and deeply saddened by this. And the questions are there. I think there's a whole long line of questions, but I, I don't see that this is the focus in this immediate, in these immediate moments. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I fully understand that. And the current discussion, I think, about evacuation of the southern communities, those communities that have lived right on next to, close to the border with Gaza. I think you're, again, your, your guidance on the detail, but, uh, emptying out those communities essentially so that people are mm -hmm. not in yeah. directly in harm's way. And there are those string of places which were, you know, Kibbutz area. It's a place I visited. The notion that that was a site of a kind of, you know, sh shootout, a hostage situation. I mean, all of those things. One thing I was going to say just when for you mentioned that episode hours. of, for hours, it was going on right into the nighttime. Eventually, I think perhaps even in some of these cases, it was the early hours of, of Sunday. It was 1 a.m., et cetera, where some of these situations were resolved. It took a long time. If you think about the intensity of, uh, feeling that is aroused by even just individual episodes. We've talked on this podcast before about the case of Gilad Shalit, one soldier who was abducted, taken across into Gaza and spent a huge length of time, years, in as a captive. That was enough to be a huge international episode to cause uh, massive diplomatic implications and to cause a degree of trauma in the country. Yesterday, there were, we don't know a number, but dozens, scores, hundreds of Gilad Shalits, and some of them not in uniform. And so you just amplify, I'm just trying to give a sense of why what we're talking about now is colossal, because each one of, each one of those little scenes that has played out, compounded, creates something of an enormity. And I think you and I, before we did the podcast, texting each other, you know, we're looking for the right comparison. Is it 73? Is it even the biggest thing of this kind since 1948, the founding of the state? I think I think it could be. And, and we are in uncharted territory. We are in an unprecedented place where, again, we don't know the exact number, how many civilians, how many soldiers have been abducted. Another failure, how did, how did it happen that they managed to take so many people uh, uh, back? Where were the fighter pilots? Where was the military when that happened? But we don't know the exact number. And how do you now 
orchestrate a response. And if you want to attack Gaza, you want to enter uh, whatever this government is planning, you have tens of Israelis inside, abducted, you don't know where. I mean, this is, again, as you said, Gilad Shalit is one story that kept the Israelis' attention, held their attention for five years. This is something on an entirely different scale. We should, though, mention that after the initial surprise and, and, and bases being attacked, I mean, obviously soldiers fought heroically here, not only soldiers, so did policemen, so did civilians fighting heroically to try and save their towns. There are obviously these civic emergency squads in every town. They fought uh, heroically. People just, you know, trying to come in and, and, and save their loved ones. You saw a lot of heroism as well. When you think of people uh, inside their houses begging for help, and I said they were calling us on live television, they were calling anyone they knew to try and help them while the terrorists were walking really from door to door in some of the towns. One of the more kind of incredible stories that, that, that illustrates how difficult it was for the military to be everywhere all at once is the story of Amir Tibon. He's a diplomatic correspondent of Haaretz. He was with his family in a safe room in their house in Nachal Oz. Him, his wife Miri, his two daughters, small daughters, they were stuck there for nine hours. And he had the luck to call his father, Major General, retired, Noam Tibon, and say, Dad, you have to save us. And this father, who's not retired, he was a general in the military for a very long time, goes in there, basically does not stop for a red light, manages to take his own personal gun and to uh, meet a few soldiers on the way. And they rescue Amir and his family and other families in Nachalos just to show you how in the first hours of this, what a complete, you know, uh, really a mess in, in, in an attempt to save people and an attempt to sort of fight Hamas terrorists, how, how this looked on the ground. Amir Timon being a really a much admired journalist inside Israel and outside. And just one example, by the way, of something I think is uh, going to be with us for many, many years. There will be so many stories, individual, extraordinary stories. This is one of them. Let's just talk about what the responses might be and can be. There already has been, as everyone knew, there would be a ferocious military response, you know, a very big death toll and toll of injuries among Gazans as a result of Israeli uh, strikes uh, on, the, on the Gaza Strip, as, you know, inevitably we knew there would be. Two things that come to my mind. One, to what extent are Israel's hands tied by the presence of those hostages? Because maybe there had been talk of a ground incursion and uh, full-scale even recapture of the Gaza Strip. Is that militarily now mm-hmm. not off the table, but extremely fraught? Because you never know if by doing that you sign the death warrant of those hostages. And the second thing, again, and I, you know, I know that um, there are reports already of Hezbollah saying they were behind some mortar shells fired on Mount Dov in the north of Israel and the Israeli. Uh, army launching um, its own retaliatory attacks. The fear that this becomes a war on multiple fronts, that Hezbollah, which let's face it, like Hamas, is also a proxy of Iran or an ally of Iran. Are they watching and waiting and thinking, yeah, this is a moment of vulnerability for Israel. We will now attack from the north. I mean, to what extent is this? It's so hard to move beyond just the human uh, individual stories, but militarily, where is this going, Yoni? 
Look, first of all, we have to say that we, we compare this to 9-11, so just in proportion, the number of Israeli civilians already dead is a few times over 9-11 in comparison to the size of the population Israel and the United States. I'm just saying that because when you think of what should be the response or what was the American response to 9-11, we haven't been see, seeing that anything near close to that yet, Israel retaliating. But again, as you say, Israel's hands are tied in a way because there are civilian uh, hostages and and, and soldiers uh, held by Hamas. Israel, on the other hand, needs to show the other enemies that are still here, like Hezbollah, as you mentioned, that if this happens, it will retaliate in a very massive way. So it's it's a big dilemma. And let's add to that another thing that complicates everything here. Israel is now embroiled in an an internal conflict. This government, uh, which has already been losing confidence of many of its citizens, is now supposed to lead, you know, walk the citizens into a war that we don't know how it will begin and how it will end. And that's why we're hearing more and more conversations about a possible unity government or some sort of you know, difference in the way the political structure is is great because we are at war. I mean, if that wasn't clear thus far. uh, So there are all been been conversations. Yair Lapid said yesterday he would agree to an emergency government, emergency unity government. Benny Gantz is also contemplating. They have some conditions. They want Ben Gvir and Smotrich, the most extreme parts of the coalition, out of the coalition. We don't yet know. Uh, Netanyahu hasn't been calling for this officially, but this is something that can happen. We should also mention all of our discussion in the past nine months, Jonathan, about reservists and about their problems with judicial overhaul and will they or will they not uh, serve. All of them uh, have come to the rescue when Israel is in this dire situation. No one stayed at home uh, in this in this moment. We should say that as well. So because you've taken us to the politics, I, I think a couple of interesting things there. This, is there a Split between Lapid and Gantz. What I, you know, see is that Yale yeah, people say yes to a coalition, so long as Ben Gvir and Smotrich are not there. Others mm-hmm. saying that Gantz would go in, even if they are there. That's mm-hmm. an interesting uh, potential, you know, hairline fracture in the opposition. I think it comes down to a question we've never really been able, in my mind, able to answer, which is what does Netanyahu really want? Because if he really wants those, this, the judicial reform business to close out, he now has a chance just to draw a line under that chapter and say, all bets are off now because of this situation, and therefore Ben Gvir and Smotrich can walk, and he brings in the opposition, and then that that whole internal front of division. And remember, when we had our conversation with Yuval Neri, a veteran of Yom Kippur War, on just a matter of days ago, Friday, two days ago, uh, he was saying the difference between now and 73 is then the threat was external, now it's internal. Little did he or we know the threat was still very external. But I did wonder about that, whether this is an opportunity now for Netanyahu to make to close down the internal battle and go for this national unity. It all depends on what he really wants. But military, but your point about the soldiers who had said we refuse to train or, or do reserve duty, them coming back and doing their, their bit, it opens up this question of, which I wonder if this is where things are going in the next, in the coming phase. Will people say that partly Israel was less militarily ready for this attack because it has been gazing inward and dealing with reservists who will not serve and so on because of the judicial overhaul. And if they do think that, 
Do they then blame the reservists themselves and say, you protesters, this is your fault. You, you made the country turn in on itself at a time we needed to be united. Or do they turn on Netanyahu and his ministers and say, you, by propelling this divisive plan that split the country down the middle and had protests every week for 39 weeks, this is on you. And I genuinely don't know which of those two directions public opinion will go in, but it seems to me both could be, you know, there will be supporters of both those. And it's going to be an emotional response to this trauma that people will inevitably want to uh, find someone to blame. And I wonder if the protests and the trauma of the last eight months figures centrally in that coming argument. I think we should first and foremost realize that Israel of two days ago is not Israel of today. And it's something so, I don't know how to say this even, so huge has happened to change everything, everything. Um, you asked me what Netanyahu wants. I, I, my automatic answer to you was he wants not to be Golda Meir after the Yom Kippur War. This is where we are now. There are so many other things at play. There will be pointing of the fingers at the military and the chief of staff of the IDF and the head of military intelligence uh, and the commander of the southern part of Israel who didn't see this coming. There will be pointing fingers, yes, as you said, at Netanyahu and his government who were looking the wrong way for eight or nine months and not uh, making sure that the military is prepared. Yes, other fingers will be pointed at the fact that the military was looking at, at the West Bank in the sense that they thought that maybe an intifada will open there and not enough at Gaza. A lot of fingers will be pointed and will be pointed probably also at the reservists and saying, oh, you, 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 the, the protest also changed our focal point and we weren't uh, concentrated enough. There's going to be a lot of blame to go around. But I think that right now, the mood is so subdued, is so traumatized that that is kind of not the focus of the conversation in this particular moment. Yeah. Um, no, I didn't think it would be. I think it's um, uh, where things go once the initial trauma recedes a little bit, that's where mm -hmm. uh, people will turn. But I think, um, I think I do buy the very first thing you said, and it's in a way what I meant about people turning to Bibi and Netanyahu. I think he will be thinking exactly on the lines you said, will this be due to him what it did to Golda Meir, the notion that you it was on your watch that we were not ready and we were vulnerable to this. And I think he will be thinking that, but I take your point that in public opinion terms, everyone is dealing with the moment with phoning relatives, finding the missing, grieving, burying the dead. That's where mm -hmm. the moment is now. And in a way, there's a version of that outside too, which is, you know, there's a, just in my own country in London, warning from the police that they're going to step up security and um, areas of, uh, with large Jewish communities, there'll be extra police presence in those areas because they know whenever Israel is in uh this kind of state, um, the, you know, anti-Semitic attacks increase, anti-Jewish attacks, attacks on Jewish targets. So there are already people bracing for that. And yet, even at the same time, all the usual, the cyber warriors are out, the keyboard warriors are out on Twitter and elsewhere saying all the usual arguments you can anticipate with depressing predictability. Outside Israel, there's less of a sense of waiting for the 
finger pointing to begin. It began within hours of it starting, but I can see absolutely inside Israel, it's going, there's, there's a kind of numbness Mm -hmm. initially and a trauma, and it will take time for that to pass before people get into that. I, I feel like the need to say something that's at least a little bit, I don't know, um, I can't say optimistic in any way, uh, but I can say that, first of all, we keep comparing it to 1973 and in a way even in, in what we've seen in the civilian, the horrendous civilian massacres, 1948, Israel won both those wars. I think it's important to say and return to even in the light of what we've seen in the last day and a half Uh, This is not an existential threat to the country. And I think it's important. I think it's also important to know that we don't have a pretense of what Hamas is anymore. We know what it wants. We know what it's capable of. At least in that regard, all kinds of attempts to say, and again, this is policy mainly by the prime minister for all of his years in office, to say, in a sense, we will weaken the Palestinian Authority. But we will somehow manage to negotiate with Hamas and let them hold on to the Gaza Strip and see how we can manage that. That was their the policy, and that policy needs to be questioned again after, as you say, the country mourns uh, what has happened and buries the dead and realizes the actual uh, size of this uh, disaster, which we do not know at this point. But as again, there will be a lot of questions that we'll need that we'll need to ask. Two thoughts on that, I think. One is, your point about showing the face of Hamas, and I think uh, for Israelis that there's no news there. That would be what most Israelis have long thought about Hamas. But I do notice that something in terms of the wider information war um, that you know was launched immediately with you know Israeli diplomats abroad and others firing off messages and uh, tweets and so on. Right, the information in 2023. The argument, the polemic, the online, the Twitter or X or whatever is part of war now. In that context, I think Israel felt its position was received with more understanding around internationally than has been the case with previous episodes, um, whether it's Castle Ed or 2014 or subsequent ones. Often the way that was understood around the world was what Israel suddenly pounding Gaza. Why? There nothing happened. You know, the, what Israelis would see as the provocation that led to the Israeli response was often not registered or understood. This time for 24 hours, what was reported around the world and people have got complaints with different national broadcasters and so on. But what was reported around the world was an, a surprise attack by Hamas raiding across border, grabbing civilians, killing civilians and so on. And that is why you get something like the statement Volodymyr Zelensky put out, warmly supporting Israel and its right to defend itself. And I think that means this is positioned differently from previous eruptions between Gaza and Israel, that the initial inciting incident, if you like, is there visible for everyone to see. And so there's a degree of understanding and and even sympathy that is being lent to Israel this time that I have not picked up in previous encounters, one hesitates to say rounds, because that's such a dispiriting notion of rounds and rounds of this. The second maybe optimistic thought is we've talked about Yom Kippur in 1973. We didn't really talk much about the fact that within four or four years and five or six by the time it was turned into something, Israel was at peace with its uh, one of the main antagonists in that war, namely Egypt. That The horrible reality of I was going to say the Middle East, but actually it's maybe everywhere, is that sometimes 
it's only after these bloody and heartbreaking conflagrations that the pieces are shaken up enough that they are reassembled in a new and better way. And the Camp David Accords between Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin came within now for this distance, it looks like, you know, a blink of an eye from the Yom Kippur War. It was several years. And maybe there is a shaking of the pieces here with this conflict that is just means people will not be able to revert to the previous, what I would always have said, you know, would say and have always said, untenable, unsustainable situation. That the Gaza situation, the condition of Gaza, hemmed in from all sides, Israel not occupying in terms of settlements or, or boots on the ground, but controlling life in there, was never a permanently sustainable situation. And if this means that there is some new thinking around how this can be made bearable and livable for people on both sides of that border, that will be something. I'm mindful, by the way, of course, that things can always get worse. So I know that. But this, you know, between us, we're trying to find things to, just to some hope to cling on to. The notion that the last time there was a big existential conflict like this, and this one I know is not existential in that way, there was a reshaping of the diplomatic puzzle and maybe something like that can happen again. Yeah, I find that hard to see. I, I, I you know, um, your your attempts to somehow make me feel better. Uh, I applaud them, but I, I find that hard to are. see with with something. You saw like right terror, through me, Yoni. Yeah, I mean, I you know, it's the Hamas is a terror organization. It's not Egypt that was trying and 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 reaching out for peace after the war. This is a different story. Does this in any way will this in the you know long term change our uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know where to take that thought. But but I, I again, as I said, I applaud your your attempt at you know trying to make me feel better. I do indeed. Um, I appreciate that. I really do because these uh, days, th- this was a very very hard day, and it will probably continue for a while. So you might have to gear up to making trying make trying to make me feel better for another couple of weeks. Yeah, um, no, I know that. And uh, I think this is, as I said uh, before, this is one of those moments where Israelis and the wider Jewish world are overwhelmingly united. And it's a, a unity in anxiety, really. It's with that everyone is sharing the same worry that, uh, that, you know, the pain of waiting and hoping for news and f- imagining the plight of those hostages and sharing in the tears of the bereaved, that this is one of those moments where, in a way, that kind of sentiment is thicker than politics. And that, I think, is what's uh, being felt and connecting, you know, you and me in this conversation and people listening to this who are um, desperate with worry and and heartbreak at the moment. Well, look, there is obviously huge amounts to say and absorb and think about and between us and everyone listening. We're going to be doing that uh, for a long time to come. I suspect you and I will talk again uh, at our regular time or maybe even before then. We'll see how things pan out this week. Um, but look, you stay safe. We will be in touch. People will be thinking of you and everyone in Israel and uh, see you next time. Yeah, I, I know we all always try to ha- end somehow on a high note, but this is just what we are in now. And I think that this is going to be our lives for the next couple of weeks. Um, so we'll just have to report on it as accurately as we can. And I'll try and, you know, go through what it feels like uh, from this side of the conversation. 
We'll do that. We'll see you. Um, we'll keep that conversation going and we'll see you all next time.